Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus in the weirdest year in American history, 2020. This is increment 72 of our study in this little homily, a homily designed for us at this time in history. One word today, Samaran, means today, and it's a key word, not only in this homily, and in the next section that we're about to take on, but also, well, I think I found around 286 references of it to the word today in the Bible, and I could be wrong. Don't forget, if you're listening to this message before Christmas or before December, we have a Treasures for Children project ongoing right now, and you can check it out on the website to Telestai. Dot org, and you can call the church number and find out how to drop off some new toys for children in this area so that we can make their Christmas a little more joyous than it normally would have been. So, Father, we thank you today. We pray that you will search us, search, I'll pray for myself, search my heart, and see if there's any wicked way in me. Because if we're going to be in any way descriptive of our own generation or even critical of it, we certainly have to remove the log from our own eyes first. If there is any wicked way, we pray that you'll show it to us, that we may acknowledge it and have it out of the way so that we may see clearly. We thank you for this opportunity and we entrust our hearts to you to be taught by you today in a meaningful way. And Father, I pray that you'll continue to motivate those who are listening to the messages in this series. Let them know that the more serious we take these messages and the more carefully we consider the content, look up the verses, and place ourselves before you, the more we'll benefit from this series. Some who listen to this message will not benefit from it, Father, and that's very sobering because they will not have mixed faith with it. Others will benefit from it immensely, and still others will forfeit being benefited by it because they will reject what they say is negative about it, the negative incentive incentive and the rebukes that are in it. Make us all available to your whole word, the whole counsel, Father, that we may go on to spiritual maturity, to a perfection that glorifies your Son. For we ask it in his name. Amen. There's a constant search for words in our contemporary society that could or should be included in contemporary dictionaries. One that's under consideration for the Cambridge Dictionary as recently as November 2nd of this year is Goldfish Generation. Consider that. Goldfish Generation is, by definition, a way of referring to the group of people who have grown up with smartphones and other technology, and have a poor memory, 
and attention span as a result. Now that's very interesting. A way of referring to the group of people who have grown up with smartphones and, wow, is that an oxymoron, and other technology and have, please notice that, a poor memory and attention span. Now this speaks of a specific group of people. When we think of the word generation, we think of a group of people, usually a group of people who are living at the same time or are contemporaries. We hear about millennials as a generation. We hear about baby boomer generation. We hear about generation X, generation Y, etc., etc. But this term, the goldfish generation, is a term that refers not only to contemporaries, but to a specific group of contemporaries that includes adults of a generation on the way out and the children of a generation coming up. Now, I've begun today's message this way for a couple of reasons, and there's a million ways to approach every single message I'm doing, so I pray every night before I go to bed on the last day of my preparation that the Lord will direct me. Two reasons why I started this way. First, the goldfish generation has defects that are addressed specifically in Hebrews, namely a poor memory, which is kind of obliquely addressed in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. Hey, don't you remember when you were first enlightened? On to verse 34 of Hebrews 10. And more significantly, it addresses a poor attention span, especially in a critical passage, Hebrews 5, 11 to 14. And so, for that reason... Be attentive, which we've studied in this congregation over the past decade or so, as the first of five transcendent precepts that are necessary to a spiritual life. And be attentive is the most basic of those five. Be attentive, be intelligent, be reasonable, be responsible, and be in love. Be attentive is the first and the most basic. And attentiveness requires humility, as we know, from Psalm 34, 2 and passages like James 1, 19 to 21. So, if you have a bad attention span, you're already handicapped from true spirituality or a development. A, for, the, for that reason, therefore, be attentive is so important throughout all the scriptures, and we're going to look at that more carefully as we progress in this next section of Hebrews. So a poor attention span is particularly deleterious to the development of true spirituality. Somebody says, why do you use a big word like deleterious? So that you can look it up and expand your vocabulary, of course. I could say harmful, but I like new words sometimes or different words. A generation with a poor memory and a lousy attention span. How's that? Instead of poor, I said lousy. A generation 
with a poor memory and a lousy attention span is headed to be that which Deuteronomy 32.5 and Philippians 2.15 describes as a crooked and perverted generation, twisted, warped. A generation without the long-term memory afforded by true history. Listen carefully. A generation with a poor memory, a memory, a long-term memory afforded by true history can be twisted into a crooked generation by forces committed to the revision of history for their own tyrannical purposes. If you ever study the project of Marxism, you'll be amazed at how much of that kind of thing is happening today in our nation, for example. It is part of their job is the revision of history for their own tyrannical purposes. A generation, on the other hand, whose short-term memory suffers is a generation in which even the young experience symptoms of dementia that are usually experienced only by the aged. They too, young people coming up, they too can be molded for purposes of those in control of the information and the disinformation passed on through their smartphones. And I'm, I think that's hilarious. Smart, well, that's the ultimate oxymoron. Through their smartphones and by a monopolized technology. The scriptures sometimes speak generationally. In other words, they speak of a generation. David, it says, served his generation and then died. Generationally, and that means that the scriptures describe oftentimes a group of people who may either be contemporaneous or a group of people who may share particular characteristics, mostly moral or spiritual ones. And this is not by, by any means to broad brush a particular group of people. The Bible isn't racist, xenophobic, or hysterical. Neither is it afraid to be accused of these things by a goldfish. There are two words that may be properly translated as generation in the Greek text of the scriptures. And an attentive listener, attentive listener, are there any out there? Attentive listener will pick up on the nuances of meaning between these two. First, there's one word called ekgonon, ekgonon. The Greek is E-K-G-O-N-O-N. And it's used four times in four consecutive verses in Proverbs chapter 30, and then verse 11, 12, 13, and 14. Ek gonon. And the reason it takes me so long sometimes to prepare these messages is because I'm always motivated to translate the Greek text or the Hebrew text in my own way through my own sources and tools and instead of just taking a good translation. So this is my translation 
of Proverbs 30, verse 11 to 14. Notice that word ekgonon, or generation, used four times. It says, an evil generation, ekgonon, curses its father and does not speak well of its mother. An evil generation, ekgonon, judges itself to be righteous, but departs from washing itself. 13. An evil generation, ekgonon, has lofty eyes and lifts up its eyebrows. The picture is the body language of supercilious arrogance, haughtiness, judgmentalism, the kind of thing that censures cancels, trolls, ghosts, whatever it is today that people do because they're so righteous, though they're unclean, and they're willing to judge others without pulling the log out of our own eyes. Sometimes we try to get the little splinter out of somebody else's eye. doesn't work too good. Fourteen, an evil generation, ek ganon, listen to this one has teeth like swords and molars like knives in order to destroy and devour the humble from the earth and their poor from mankind. Now this kind of generation is the kind of generation that Jesus spoke about in Luke eleven fifty one, forty nine to 51 really, and also in Matthew 23, God sends them people into their history to help them. This kind of generation doesn't understand when God raises up a man or a woman to help them because they're so distorted and warped by disinformation. And so, like the prophets of old, they killed the prophets that were sent to them. They abused them. They maligned them and hated Jesus without a reason. That's how blind a generation can become. Now, the word ekganon, in all of these cases, refers to a group of people who may make up a segment of society, and may I say reverentially, God help us if that segment of our society is large or in a majority. In every case, the generation spoken of is denounced by the sayings that were collected by a collector of sayings or a collector of proverbs whose name was Agur, A-G-U-R. And we don't know much about him, or I guess I think it's a male. He collected these sayings. We don't know much about him, but he collected these sayings. The other word for generation, much more often used, is genea, or genea, G-E-N-E-A. It's the more often used term to describe a generation. There have been times in history when a generation of people have borne the brunt of a crooked and perverse historical trend that has continued for many generations. And it's not that they took the blame for it all because they weren't blameworthy. They continued that historical trend and let it reach a critical mass in their time. That's what happened in, when Jesus came. Those who were habitually abusing, killing, casting out, throwing down, maligning, canceling, trolling, killing the prophets that were sent for them to help them, to bring them out of their malaise, 
finally killed the Lord Jesus Christ. They finally voted for his crucifixion. And Jesus himself declared the responsibility of the segment of the society of the generation in which he lived in the days of his flesh. He said of them, and this is in essence what he says in Luke 11.51, this generation, Genea, will be held responsible for the blood of innocent people and prophets from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Now, interestingly, in English, that's from A to Z. The Greek doesn't have A to Z. It has alpha to omega. But it's interesting that the blood of Abel, which is also a subject in Hebrews 12, 24, which we're going to discover, and the blood of Zechariah, whom they killed between the altar and the holy place, A to Z in the English. All the blood of innocent people or righteous men and women and prophets from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah will be on this generation, he said. This generation will bear the brunt of the responsibility of all that blood shed. So that's interesting because Cain didn't even really bear the brunt of the murder of Abel. He was cast out of God's presence. He built a civilization. He had a mark upon him to protect him from vigilantes. And so all of this blood, all of this murder was being built up through the generations. And finally, it came due. The bill for it came due. And Jesus, of course, the catastrophe of the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 was the stark proof of the words of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, is such a fate awaiting the United States of America? We are certainly not exempt from such a judgment, such a catastrophic judgment. But that's why the portion of Scripture that we're attending upon now, from Psalm 95, for example, which is Psalm 94 in the Septuagint, is so very vital. Because in these scriptures is found the solution for putting off national and even worldwide catastrophe. And we've been warned about what can happen recently. 2020 has been a warning year. And even now, our nation is ensconced in the middle of horrific scandals, and these scandals are things of which people aren't even aware because they're not even paying attention in the right direction. Now, how does this apply to Hebrews, all of this talk so far? How does it apply to Hebrews? I think it does very much so, or else I wouldn't have started this way today. Well, we're entering into a pretty long stretch of this homily which deals in detail with a certain generation. Look ahead at Hebrews 3.10. You'll see that word, Genea. And it comes from a direct quotation of the Septuagint of Psalm 94.10, which is in your English Bible is Psalm 95.10. We've learned how to distinguish those two things. A certain generation with whom God was particularly displeased and who, due to their poor memory 
and inattentiveness to the Holy Spirit departed from the living God with an evilly affected, we could even say infected, heart of unbelief. And that's Hebrews 3.12, if you look down the line, just a little ways. And that generation, if we put a parallel to Proverbs 30, 11 to 14, it would, there's a lot of parallels. They resembled the generation just spoken of in Proverbs 30, 11 to 12, and Deuteronomy 32, 5, in which Moses called the same people a crooked and perverse generation, and that same phrase made it into Philippians 2.15, where a complaining and embittered generation is where the Philippian saints found themselves, and Paul's whole goal was for them to shine out as stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. In other words, to be distinguished from that kind of generation a self-righteous generation, a supercilious generation, a self-absorbed generation, a censorious generation, a generation that despises its own heritage, maligns its own fathers, and that includes forefathers, doesn't speak well of its mother, all that. You find these same kind of trends in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 13. That's not a prophetic trend of the end of the world. That is a description of the end of a nation and the trends that prevail at the end of a nation. Now, could it be said that I'm teaching Hebrews 2020 on the verge of the end of a nation? Or could it be that I'm teaching Hebrews 2020 on the verge of what was known by others as a catastrophe, E-U-C-A-T-A-S-T-R-O-P-H-E. That means a good kind of catastrophe where a renewal from the word of God begins to occur in tens of millions of people worldwide in which the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ is seen and discovered, in which that vision of him is seen so that the people do not perish, Proverbs 29.10. I'm hopeful. My hope is Jesus. My hope isn't in a presidential candidate. My hope isn't in a Senate, a House of Representatives, and I don't despair because of evil rulers and evil people who are trying to clamor their way into places of power to fundamentally destroy this nation. I'm not afraid of them, nor do I give them much credit because I believe that Jesus Christ controls history, and he does so from an exalted throne at the right hand of the God of all grace. And that's another thing about the passage we're about to discover. That generation that we're going to be studying soon, and I hope you can take it. Do you need all positive stuff? So why don't you go hear a speaker, an inspirational speaker, who will only give you good things and things that are fluffy and that build you up and that bring you on a flowery bed of ease into the heavenlies. 
Well, that's not going to come from this pulpit. We're going to have a lot of positives, but we're also going to have what the Bible tells a preacher to do, rebuke, reprove, correct, with all long-suffering. Now, the generation that was spoken of here was forbidden to enter into God's rest. It's hard to translate that last passage in, that we're going to study, the last verse that we're going to study, but God definitely says, and it's very emphatic, I swore in my wrath they will never enter into my rest. That applies to Christians today and people today who refuse to listen to the Holy Spirit and who are in great and grave danger of forfeiting eschatological and everlasting blessings. So, I might be a so-called universalist, but I'm not a fluffy one. Now, the next significant segment of the document before us, therefore, has to do with this generation and with the negative incentive. Negative incentive that it afforded the initial readers and also the hearers of the letter to the Hebrews and the present and future readers of this letter and perhaps those who study with us in our particular commentary. So this next section, and that's 3, 7 to 19, but then some too, because you still have echoes of it in 4, 8, 4, 7, and 8, and it even has an echo that I think travels as far as 5, 11 to 14, where the PT says, I, I got so much more I want to say about Melchizedek, the high priest, and how he relates to Jesus, but I don't think you guys can handle it. You can't handle the truth, he said. But mixed with all of this drill sergeant talk, he also gives much assurance to them, as we're going to see, as I would with you. Those who, listen, who have listened to me now, for some of you, for 42 years, I think, coming up in November, I have great confidence in you, in God for you, and for great eschatological blessing and reward for you. And I hope to be in rows far behind you when you receive the crown of righteousness. I hope to be able to see it, even though it will no doubt be from a safe social distance. Now, the cloud of witnesses is another group of people. See, there's some positive incentive, too. This generation we're about to study, called variously the Exodus generation, the desert generation, I like to call them a little prolonged title, the wanderers in no man's land generation. This generation is a negative incentive. But the next, the cloud of witnesses, on the other hand, called the faith heroes in Hebrews 11, 1 to 40, serve as a counterpart for the faithless generation spoken of in the section we're about to handle, 3, 7 to 19, 
which provides us, the 2020 readers going into 2021, with both a negative and a positive incentive. That's the two-edged sword of the Word of God, negative and a positive. You've got to have them both. If all you're hearing is positive, upbeat, so-called messages that make you feel good, you're missing half of the Word of God's power in your life, the negative incentive. Do go here. You know, well, I can go anywhere else I want. No, don't go here. Do go here. Do take this path. Don't take that path. Well, I can take that path if I want to. Well, okay. It goes off a cliff, and the cliff falls into an ocean of shark-infested waters, but go ahead if you want. Now, our custom so far has been to consider the context of the passages that are quoted to or alluded by the PT in Hebrews. And this seems to be a profitable exercise, as we've seen already. This has proven profitable so far. Therefore, I, what I did was translate it. I was going to take the NETS excellent translation of the Greek, but then I said, no, if I'm going to have true integrity here, I've got to do my own translation from the Greek text. And so I've done that, and I call it my Arc Trans, which is an Alan Arnap translation, and it's no big deal because I'll probably never publish them because they're not that good, but they're good enough for you and I to understand. And here's the psalm, how it begins. The whole psalm is important. The part of the psalm 94.7b through 11 is actually quoted almost verbatim. There's a couple of little tiny changes in it, but they're insignificant, as we may see down the road. But here's where the psalm leads up to the passage, and I think you'll find it instructive. It says, a song of praise. Now, the Septuagint is different from the English. It's better because it's the Bible that the PT used in Hebrews. So this is what he read and why he found it significant by the Holy Spirit to deal with in his homily. But it starts this way. Psalm 94.1, a song of praise, period. Of David, period. O come, let us rejoice in the Lord, making a loud noise to God our Savior, See that? God our Savior. The voice that we're hearing when we hear it in the Holy Spirit is the voice of a Savior, God our Savior. And just as people don't recognize saviors with a small s that are sent into their history, sometimes we don't recognize the Savior, God our Savior, when we hear his voice. And hopefully Hebrews is training you how to listen carefully and understand when he's speaking. Verse 2, anticipate his face with praise. And that word anticipate is probably pretty accurate because for them and for us, we are anticipating seeing Jesus' face when he appears in glory. We do see Jesus crowned with glory and honor right now, but we see him through a glass, a hazy mirror, so to speak, and then face to face. So it says, anticipate his face with praise. Let us make a joyful noise to him. 
That means, as people have often noted, you don't really need a good voice, and it also means that musical accompaniment by various instruments can be used in doing this. Because the Lord, verse 3, is a great God and a great king over all the gods. Verse 4, because in his hands are the limits of the earth and the heights of the mountains are his. Because, verse 5, his is the sea, and he made it, and his hands formed the dry lands. Verse 6, O come, let us do obeisance and prostrate ourselves before him, and let us weep before the Lord who made us. 7a, because he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and sheep of his hand. Now, there's so many things here that pop, and I wish I could deal with them all, but I want to keep progressing at the same time in Hebrews. But that the psalm is a song is reminiscent of such songs or odes in the scripture that are mentioned in Revelation 5.9, Revelation 14.3, and 15.3. Now, this little phrase, let us, it's used three times in the first seven verses. Let's or let us is like the cohortatory phrases that the PT uses throughout Hebrews, where he doesn't say you do this or you guys do this. He says, let us do such and such. It's called cohortatory, cohortatory, let's. Hebrews 4.1, Hebrews 4.11, 4.14, 4.16. 6 1, 10 and 23 and 24. 12 1, it's used twice, let us. 12 28, let us receive grace or gratitude. 13 13, let us go outside the camp. 13 15, offering a sacrifice of praise. It's always let us. So that reverberates through Hebrews. God is specifically referred to and praised as God our Savior, and the psalmist identifies as being of the people of his pasture. A wonderful metaphor, which in a roundabout way refers to God our Savior as the great shepherd of the sheep, as Jesus is called in Hebrews 13.20. There are other parallels, and many, and I hope if you want to follow it up on your own, you could see those and be edified. There are other parallels. It's tempting to go into them, but for the moment, let's go immediately to the section of the psalm that's quoted almost word for word, syllable by syllable, even letter by letter, almost totally, with a couple of tiny exceptions that are insignificant, from the Septuagint in Hebrews 3, 7b to 11. Here's my translation of Psalm 94, 7b, the second half of 7, through 11, which is then almost transplanted wholesale into Hebrews 3. But let's look at Hebrews, or rather Psalm 94, 7b through 11. It says this, Today, sound familiar? Today, if you hear his voice, As the Holy Spirit says, now that's what's going to happen in Hebrews, but it says today, if you hear his voice, whose voice? 
the voice of God our Savior. Don't harden your hearts as in the embitterment. That's exactly what it's translated to be. The embitterment. When a generation becomes embittered, then that's when you really got to watch out for what comes next. You don't want to know what comes next. As in the embitterment during the day of trial of God in the desert, where your fathers tested, your ancestors tested. They put to the proof and saw my works. It's almost like God is shocked here. Where your fathers had the audacity to test uh, to, to put me to the test, to challenge me. Not because God is claiming to be so great and those so little, but because God is claiming to be their savior and is, and they're going against him. So let's look at it again. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the embitterment during the day of trial of God in the desert where your fathers tested, they put to the proof and saw, God is speaking, saw my works. Evidently, they had a poor memory about him, though. Verse 10, I was angry with that generation. I'm not going to, I'm going to leave that the way it says it right there. For 40 years. And said, quote, they are always made to wander astray in heart, in heart. And they do not know my ways. Verse 11, as I swore in my wrath, if they shall enter my rest. Now that thing drove me crazy. If they shall enter into my rest doesn't say anything in the English language. But the if there, a little conjunction, EI, listen very carefully here, because this is something where you get a huge insight from a tiny word. The if there, EI, in this divine oath, is a subordinating conjunction. You don't have to get all this technical language, but just get the upshot of it. It's a conditional particle. Gingrich's shorter lexicon says this, in strong assertions with the apodosis omitted, which is what it is here, E has a negative effect. EI has a negative effect. And that's a kind of a Hebraism or a Hebrew way of speaking, an idiom of speech that the Jewish people or Hebrews would have understood. It means you will never, they will never enter my rest emphatically gavel-dropped exclamation point. So this is in agreement with the particle E, which is functional in so-called contrary-to-fact conditions. <clears throat> that means that that generation definitely missed out on something extraordinary. It seems that there are also eschatological blessings that can be forfeited by those who join the ranks of the evil generation in our time. Extraordinary, age-abiding blessings that can be forfeited 
So now let's look at the context of the Hebrews homily itself. In other words, let's start with Hebrews 3.1 and see how this fits into the context of our homily, our letter. Therefore, sanctified siblings, participants in a heavenly calling, carefully consider the apostle and archpriest of what we acknowledge as ultimate reality. Jesus, who was faithful to God who appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus is considered worthy of greater glory than Moses, inasmuch as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. To be sure, every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now to that, or now, then it goes on to say, now Moses on the one hand was faithful as a servant in all God's house for a testimony to what would be spoken in the future. But Christ as a son over God's house, over God's house, whose house we show ourselves to be, if only we hold fast to the boldness and the boast of our hope. Then, new paragraph, look what it says. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says what? He, the Holy Spirit, said what's in the scriptures in Psalm 94, 7b through 11. Hebrews 3, 7 begins, you see I'm going big to, to small here. Hebrews 3, 7 begins with the inferential conjunction, dio. See, we've, we're dealing with little tiny words here. Conjunctions, very effective for interpretation, dio. Inferential conjunction means in this case that what follows is a deduction made from Hebrews 3, 6. You're going to demonstrate yourself to be God's house by holding on to the eschatological hope that's before you. Therefore, if you're going to hold on to that hope, you got to listen. I got to listen. We got to listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying. Did we get that through our heads when we taught Revelation, when we went through Revelation together in 2.7, in 2.11, in 2.17, in 2.29, in 3.6, in 3.13, in 3.22? Did we get that through our heads in Mark 4.24, in Luke 8.18, in Ecclesiastes 5.1-2? How important it is to hear and to listen to heed and be attentive to what the Holy Spirit is saying now, now, today, to the churches and to our individual hearts and minds. So, it infers that we show ourselves to be God's house by holding fast to our hope, which is our boast in Christ Jesus. And Hebrews 3.7 tells us the way to do it today. We don't harden our hearts if we hear his voice. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says in the present active indicative of the verb lego, as the Holy Spirit says, now keep saying. Now the PT believes as I do, and that's my testimony, I believe that the Holy Spirit speaks still now through the scriptures. And that in many cases, as this one, 
He speaks these very words to us today. Today, if you hear his voice. Now, some of the people who are listening to me today who are actually into Telestai Church, and you don't have to be to listen to these messages, we dubbed this year 2020 as the year of today. And we're almost at the end of the year called today, the year of today. All the way back on December 29th, 2019, in the 10th message of the Doctrine of the Mystery, we called it the upcoming year, which is 2020, the year of today. God was giving us a hint. You better live day by day in this upcoming year. Take it day at a time. Sufficient to each day is the evil thereof. Sufficient and more than sufficient to each day is the grace I'll give you. Today, if you heard the voice of the Holy Spirit say that, don't harden your heart. Don't say, no, that's not true. Don't say, no, I won't do that. Listen. So, even in that message back in December 29th, 2019, we dealt pretty heavily with Hebrews. The year of today, as we called it, has proven so far to be a year in which we have had to learn to take one today at a time and to look to Jesus Christ, who is what or who? The same yesterday Today and forever. Today, Samaron, Hebrews 13, 8, and forever. And we're to do that despite the changes that are occurring and challenges that are confronting the whole world and which are escalating and intensifying even as I'm speaking right now. Now, in a verse-by-verse study of Hebrews, stay with me, fourth gear is coming. We find ourselves challenged by just what it means to demonstrate ourselves to be the faithful house that God is building, the church that Jesus is building. Fittingly, just after 3.6 of Hebrews, but Christ as a son over his uh, God's house, whose house we demonstrate ourselves to be, we show ourselves that we are that, if only we hold fast to the bold boast of our hope. And where do we encounter the word today? Right there in 3.7b, which is a quotation of Psalm 94.7b of the Septuagint. More precisely, 3.7 goes on to say, therefore, meaning for this reason, as the Holy Spirit says, today, Samaron. Now, today is a word that appears some 286 times in the canonical Greek Bible. I counted, and this is off the top of my head, and I'm not going to spend all my time in my study counting, but this time I did count 245 uses in the Old Testament, 41 in the New. That word, now listen carefully, today appears eight times in Hebrews. 
315. By the way, 313 is one of the most beautiful roads you can take in Vermont. Let me go back. Hebrews 1, 5, 37, 313, 315, 4, 7, where it's used twice, 5, 5, and 13, 8. Now, before I said in a no doubt very self-righteous and pious way that I've pledged not to play the numbers. But I can't resist playing on the number eight here. In fact, I think I may have been mildly rebuked by the spirit of grace, gently, of course, for recently belittling belittling the significance of numbers and numerical meanings in the scripture. That's not good to do. Just because it hasn't been a particularly interesting thing to me, it's becoming that more and more. E.W. Bullinger, remember the Companion Bible? It's worth getting. The notes in it are phenomenal, sometimes too detailed. But E.W. Bullinger has an appendix in the Companion Bible. It's Appendix 10, page 14, at the back of the book, called The Spiritual Significance of Numbers. I think his treatment of the number 8, E-I-G-H-T, 8, that's the symbol for eternity, stood on its end. The number 8 is pretty edifying. And so I'll quote it in its entirety. This is what he says in his appendix. 8, E-I-G-H-T, all in caps. Quote, denotes resurrection, regeneration, a new beginning or commencement. The eighth is a new first. Hence the octave, octave in music, color, days of the week, etc. It is the number that has to do with the Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D, who rose on the eighth or new first day. This is, therefore, the dominical number. Dominical, of course, just means having to do with Dominus, the Lord, Dominus. This is Dominus Vobiscum. So, again, I'm continuing the quote. This is, therefore, the dominical number. By gematria, now we know that from our study of the 666 in Revelation, which is foolishly trying to be applied to contemporary figures in our own time and it's been going on since they said anti-christ is henry kissinger and a whole bunch of other idiotic things that are trying to clamor for people's attention today we studied gematria in 666 in in the study of the beast in revelation 13 and we found it to be the name for neron caesar and therefore it has to do with a prophecy of the fall of Jerusalem and the fall of Rome, the upcoming of the correlation or collusion between the mystery Babylon, the whore of Babylon, which is apostate Jerusalem with the Roman Empire, etc., etc. It's back past history. 
And so all the stuff that you're hearing now about the coming Antichrist and the coming false prophet and the dead and trying to apply all the stuff that ended in A.D. 70 and trying to apply it to the future history and that you should be really scared about all of it is nonsense and it's not any better than the Marxist propaganda that's circulating in our country to distort and warp people's minds. All right, so let me, let me back up. He goes on to say, by gematria... Jesus, Jesus, makes the numbers 888. It, or its multiple, is impressed on all that has to do with the Lord's names, the Lord's people, and the Lord's works. Now, I conclude from that that dominical, the word he uses, simply means the Lord and the Lord Jesus who was raised from the dead by the Father in Hebrews 13.20. I would go further and say that 8 speaks of Jesus as comprising the whole of the new creation, the W-H-O-L-E, the entirety of the new creation. As such... Jesus, and not something about Jesus, is our hope. Remember what Luke Timothy Johnson wrote in his Hebrews commentary, the term hope, Elpis, is a way of designating Jesus himself. So as I close today, I'll say this, our hope is Jesus who is the new creation, breaking in on this old evil age. Jesus is that new creation. And so that new creation, by definition, is Jesus, who is destined to comprise everything and fill up everything with him. Father, we thank you for this, another session, another increment in the study of Hebrews. May it prove edifying, may it prove challenging, may it prove beneficial to all the listeners, for I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.